Welcome to the Empowered Eating and Living Podcast, where we dive into your inner world to explore all of the psychological, emotional, energetic, and spiritual components that may be influencing your struggle with food and eating. I'm your host, Sarah Emily Spears, a trained psychotherapist and energy worker who recovered from my own eating disorder. And now I help women just like you do the inner work to address the real issues keeping you stuck in your problematic eating patterns. Because I assure you, your problem with food is about way more than food. So join me and guest experts as we discuss the psychology of eating and healing and empower you with tangible steps you can take today to begin to improve your relationship with food and yourself from a place of true nourishment and care. Hey, so we are going to talk about emotional wounds part two. In last week's podcast episode, I explained what emotional wounds were and why they're essential on your healing journey to improve your eating issues. And I explained my process for helping individuals to uncover and repair emotional wounds or process and heal them. At the very end of last week's podcast, I explained the five most common categories of emotional wounds that I encounter with the women that I work with that I also had to heal myself. And I'm going to dive a little bit deeper into explaining what those five categories are so you can have more clarity around whether or not these apply to you. And in my sharing about my own personal experience healing these emotional wounds, maybe it will inspire you to realize that you are not a victim to your past and the experiences that you've had. And if you feel called to dive into this work and you're looking for a guide or a support person, then you can always reach out. You can submit an application to work with me one-on-one -on -one or in my upcoming group programs where we do this work together so that you don't have to do it alone, which is not fun. We are not meant to do this work alone, okay? We are meant to do it together in community. That is the direction that healing is going. I fully believe that and I'm experiencing that personally. I'm seeing that around me and it's exciting that we're starting to feel this like the changing tides in healing and how it's going from individual me to the collective we. With that, the first emotional wound that I described is called the breaking point. And the breaking point explains what happened when things really got bad for you. So if you think back in time historically, and you were to pinpoint when your eating issues, when your obsession with food, when your binging or disordered eating tendencies really started to become problematic, you will most likely find that there was this period of time that was the breaking point when all shit hit the fan and I just started binging all of the time. For myself, my breaking point, I didn't realize it at the time because when you're in it, you don't realize what's happening. It's after the fact that you can identify it. For me, what I found is that I had moved to San Diego from New York, packed all of my things in my car and drove across the country. And the day that I moved into my sublet, my car got stolen with everything that I owned, all of my belongings and material possessions for my entire basically childhood and adolescence and life was in the snap of a finger gone. And I found myself in San Diego without a car, without a job, without belongings. I had the clothes on my back and my purse. I didn't have friends or a connection because I didn't have a car. I didn't have a way to go drive to get job interviews. And so I was really stuck and it was actually a very traumatic experience. There's also this layer of your identity 
this identity theft because whoever stole my car also got their hands on my credit cards and went and spent thousands of dollars at the Apple store. So I had to go through this whole um, credit, you know, reporting fraud process. And it was a lot that I had to handle on my own. And I didn't have safety and I didn't have security and I didn't have a support system. And that happened simultaneously with my decision to go on a diet for the first time ever under the intention of being as healthy as I could be. And by doing that, I also was depriving my body of the nourishment it needed to be healthy and well. And so this combination of dieting and these circumstantial events, right, these stressors that happened in my life at that time created the perfect storm. And my body could not handle everything that was going on by myself. And I started to revert to binging and purging as the unconscious way to try and process all that I was going through didn't realize it, but I can see it now in hindsight. Also the dieting, right? Maybe you don't have circumstances going on that seem like obvious stressors to you when you go back to that time in your life, but dieting can be considered a stressor depending on how much you're restricting or what you're depriving your body of. That can be for a body, um, a form of artificial scarcity, right? So it's like you're creating a famine and a famine would be an intense stressor for a human body to have to go through and live through. So that might be worth reflecting on as well is, was the breaking point actually that I was depriving my body of too many nutrients and not nourishing myself enough and therefore creating artificial scarcity and artificial famine that my body responded to as a stressor. The second category of emotional wounds are repressed anger and what I call the inner rebel. So for many of us growing up, we had experiences where as you start to become more independent, you become this adolescent who wants to make your own choices and do what you want to do and become your own person. And you're bumping up against the rules and the expectations that your parents have for you or that your school it has for you or that society has for you and so there's this tug of war that can often happen around trying to become your own independent and self-actualized human being and also following the rules and being a good girl and so many women we try really hard to be good we often want to do what we're told or follow the rules because we want our parents approval we want our teachers approval we want to receive that positive acknowledgement and validation. And there can be a deep, deep subconscious fear that if I'm not good and if I don't do what I'm told, then I will get in trouble. I will lose love. I will lose connection. And that can be a really terrifying thought. And so many of us will get angry that we have to do what we're told, but we will reluctantly follow and stuff down the anger and then find ways to rebel behind our parents' back. Now, there are some people I meet who were beautifully rebellious. They had no problem being the bad girl and they would fight against all the rules and do the opposite of what they were told. Maybe that was you, in which case this category of emotional wounds may not apply to you so much. But what we're looking at is whether you were outwardly rebelling against the rules or inwardly rebelling, if you were throwing your own internal tantrum, temper tantrum, because it wasn't fair that you had to do these things that you didn't want to do, but you would stuff down that anger and then potentially find other more subtle ways 
to rebel behind your parents' back without them knowing. Or you just have this well of pent up anger that has never been expressed. Then what we find is as you get older and you become an adult, first of all, there's a ton of repressed anger that's stuck inside. And if you have not acknowledged it, identified it, and permissioned yourself to process it, then you may actually be binging to stuff down the intensity of the anger that is buried inside of you, but it builds up like a volcano. So it reaches that, that breaking point where eventually there's the explosion. But if you're not permissioning yourself to process the anger in healthy and effective ways, you could actually swallow the anger, right? You could turn it inwards and the explosion becomes an implosion. It becomes a form of inner intensity that if you're not aware of it, you may deal with by binging or purging because purging can be an attempt to release the energy and have that outward movement to get it out of you. Now, the other thing to keep in mind when we're looking at rebelling is that, like I said, it can be super subtle. So I'll give you my example, which is that when I was 16, I wasn't allowed to ride in a car that was driven by a 16 year old, right? I wasn't allowed to be passenger in a car with teen drivers. That was a rule that my parents had obviously to keep me safe and to protect me from a potential car accident. But for me as a 16 year old, I hated it. I didn't think it was fair. All my friends got to ride together in cars and I had to take the school bus home, right? You could imagine the amount of embarrassment that I had about having to take the school bus at 16 when my friends were like, hey, we can bring you home. And I would have to say, no, I'm not allowed. Like, I hated it. And so there would be times when if I knew my parents weren't home, I would say, okay, right? And I would let them drive me home anyway, even though I knew I wasn't supposed to and I was doing something wrong or bad according to my parents' rules and expectations. So that's an example of how I rebelled behind their back. Now, as we get older, again, if you start to identify how you used to respond to your authority as a child, if you got angry at the rules that they imposed on you, if you had to follow them to be a good girl, or if you rebelled against them, either outwardly or in subtle ways behind their back, typically as an adult, you will respond to your own inner authority the same way you responded to your authority growing up. I will say that again because it is so important to hear. Look at how you respond to your own internal authority now because it's very likely that you will rebel against your own authority the way you rebelled against your parents' rules and regulations if you didn't like them and didn't agree with them. So the way that looks then as an adult now is if you're telling yourself, oh, you can't eat sugar, no more fat, no dairy, you need to start tomorrow on this diet, you can't eat fast food anymore. If you still have unprocessed anger that your adolescent is holding on to, she is going to fight back against those rules. She's not going to like it. She doesn't want to be told what to do. And so then what you find is that you've got this adult part that's making this choice to do something that you think is in your best interest and you have another internal part that is fighting against it and you may experience that gridlock or that back and forth and so you might be good for a few days and then that part says fuck it i want what i want i don't care what you said i'm gonna go eat the cookies and you know what watch me i'm gonna eat more what are you gonna do about it 
right? And so we can see this really intense dance take place inside of us when we have unprocessed anger at authority that then shows up in this rebellious nature. And if you resonate with any of this, or maybe you don't because your anger is so repressed, you don't even realize it's there. Either way, you will most likely benefit from doing some serious anger work. Processing and releasing the energy of anger in healthy ways so that rather than it building up internally, it releases out of your system and then you're not using food to try and process it for you. The third category of emotional wounds are shame and the false self. Now, a great book that you could read if you're curious and really diving into this topic of shame and the false selves is called Healing the Shame That Binds Us. I'll put that in the show notes. And in that book, he identifies the shame spiral or pattern, which is that essentially as children, if we experienced shame, say, for example, your parents said, don't do that, and you did it, and they scold you, and then you feel shame for doing it, shame for a child is an energy that if you don't have your cognitive abilities fully processed, you begin to internalize the shame. And when we internalize shame, we conclude not just that I did something bad, but that I am actually a bad person. I hear a lot of clients say this, that there's this underlying subconscious core belief of I am bad. That points to internalized shame that you've personalized, right? So sometimes we can feel shame and that could be a healthy emotion that indicates you did something that wasn't an integrity with how you want to behave or that's not aligned with your values or morals, right? Shame lets us know maybe something isn't okay, but it can get a little wonky if we're getting scolded for doing things that aren't bad or wrong, and then we experience shame. And a really common example, for example, would be a child who's touching themselves, right? A, a curious child whose hands just naturally find their genitals. And then a parent comes in and, and says, what are you doing? That's wrong. That's bad. We don't do that. And this child who was innocent and just curious and exploring their body suddenly feels all of this shame and thinks, Ooh, I'm, I'm bad. I did something bad. So if we believe we're bad and we did something bad as a child, and we didn't have a parent who could tell us otherwise or assure us that there's a difference between the behavior and the person, right? Even if you push your brother and we say that's not a behavior that you want to do, we're just identifying the behavior. You're still a good kid. If you didn't get the assurance that you're a good kid, even when you do something that is labeled as bad, you're more vulnerable to conclude I am bad and to carry that shame. And then over time, we create these identities to try and prevent us from feeling more shame, right? It's like, oh, I didn't like getting told I was bad. I didn't like the way it felt to feel this shame. So let me go find other ways to protect myself from ever feeling this level of shame again. I don't want anyone to know how bad I am, right? The two ways that I see this show up most commonly, these false selves, these personalities, or these masks that we begin to wear are the perfectionist and the people pleaser. So the perfectionist says, I know how I'll never, I will never let anyone see how bad I am because I'm going to perfect being good. I'm going to be good at everything, right? That was me. So I fully own that I was 
oh man, I was really good at being perfect. In fact, girls in elementary school used to make fun of me and call me little miss perfect. And I would come home so ashamed that I was perfect, even though I simultaneously was trying to avoid feeling shame for being imperfect, right? The other one is the people pleaser. So the people pleaser says, I will do whatever it takes to make sure you never get angry with me, that you never feel upset with me, that you never dislike me because that felt so uncomfortable. And so then we become people who we put ourselves last and we say yes to everything to support everyone else. And we override our intuition and our, our inner knowing and what's right and best for us. And we stop asking for what we need and we don't create healthy boundaries all because of the shame that we started to experience at a young age. So a huge part of the healing journey is going back in time and uncovering some of the key moments in your upbringing where you might have experienced really intense shame that you internalized, that reinforced the story that I'm bad, and that contributed to you creating your own false selves, your own part that's trying to be perfect or your own part that's trying to please others. Now, if you struggle with this perfectionistic part, that also is going to show up then in eating, right? Trying to eat perfectly and trying to have the perfect body. So these all go hand in hand. And if you've experienced this internalized shame and that shame cycle, then we can subconsciously engage in behaviors as adults that recreate shame because we believe I'm bad. So then we create evidence in our life to support that we're bad. What do I mean? How does that show up in eating? Think about it, right? If you tell yourself, I'm not gonna binge today, I'm gonna be good. I'm not gonna eat the whole box of cookies again. I'm not gonna go pick up fast food tonight after work. And then you end up doing it. When you engage in that behavior, again, especially when you told yourself, I'm not going to, how do you feel? usually flooded with shame. I can't believe I did it again, right? And then that familiar feeling comes back and it reinforces our belief. See, I'm a bad person. See, there's something wrong with me. See, I am broken. And so it's this really backward self-fulfilling prophecy. So deeply repressed and sort of um, embedded shame has to be addressed on your healing journey because you will continue to perpetuate the cycles of binging and restricting or binging and purging and really marinate in that shame if you haven't uprooted the shame that was placed there many, 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 many years ago when you were a child or adolescent. Okay, so healing the shame is a really important piece. The fourth emotional wound are called body boundary violations and safety. Body boundary violation is a term that I use to describe any time that your body feels violated or invaded in your personal bubble, your personal space. This could include your energy body and this can include the physical body. And it could be somebody looking at you in a way that makes you feel uncomfortable. Maybe you've had experiences, I certainly have, of you know men looking you up and down and it's like, you know, they joke in, in comedy movies that he like, I fucked the shit out of you or something like just their look alone communicated that they were undressing you and, and doing sexual things to you. And it, ugh, it makes you crawl in your skin. If you've ever been on the receiving end of those kind of looks, 
that person didn't touch you. That person didn't say anything to you, right? You wouldn't be able to f call the police on them. Like there's, there's no action that happened, but it is still a violation because the way it impacts you is that it creates fear. It creates discomfort in your body, right? So we get to call that a body boundary violation. And that's just from a look, right? There's this like scale of intensity. Then you've got when somebody says something to you that makes you feel uncomfortable or unsafe in your body, especially as a woman. I remember when I graduated from college, I had a job at Yale University and I was walking to my car and I'm at a red light waiting across the street and this car pulls up at the red light and the man rolls down his window and shouts through the window, I'm gonna fuck this shit out of you. And I was terrified. I froze in place and I didn't know what was gonna happen. Like I had this flash in my mind of, is this man gonna get out of the car and try and throw me in his car and hurt me, like violently hurt me. And I had to you know, kind of shake myself out of it and turn the other way and start to walk back towards work to try and find safety. And he just ended up driving off, right? But that illustrates how there can be a moment where there's a, a verbal comment or verbal aggression that could be a body boundary violation you know because you feel unsafe, you know because your body activates a fight, flight, fear response. You know because you are so scared about what could potentially happen. And this is so important because so many women I work with, when I initially ask them in our intake or consultation, have you ever experienced any sexual trauma? Like nine times out of 10 women will tell me no. And then when I reworded, have you ever experienced a body boundary violation where someone has said something or looked at you in a way that made you feel scared or unsafe in your female body? Now, nine times out of 10, I get a yes, because women never considered that to be something that could impact their body. But trauma is not always something that happened to you. If your brain is reacting to the thought of what could happen, if your brain is anticipating that there is a threat of danger or harm to your well-being, then it is going to activate the fight, flight, freeze response as a way to protect you and prevent you from experiencing the harm. And if you weren't able to fully process that energy through your body, and that is stuck as an imprint in your mind, right? Like my brain was like, I remember that car and that man and that image is ingrained in my mind so that I can make sure, right? It's like my mind is constantly scanning the streets to make sure no man like that approaches me again so that there's never a threat of that ever happening again. Even though I didn't actually experience physical harm, my brain has become more hypervigilant, right? And so I had to go and do processing around that experience to release the charge and the fear that was still imprinted in that memory so that I'm not walking down the street with all this fear energy in my system anytime a man walks by me, right? This is the, the complexity of the human brain and why we might be like, you know, nothing bad ever happens to me, but I'm still struggling. It can be as simple as a 30 second interaction that is creating the emotional wounds in the past that are still affecting you in the present. Okay, so that's only, we've looked at how men look at you. Now we're talking about how they speak to you. And then if we go a little bit further, right, it's actual physical contact, how somebody touches you, what they do to your body with or without your permission, 
And a body boundary violation could be as simple as grabbing a boob or touching your butt or even putting their hand on your back in a way that doesn't feel comfortable. When we're little kids, if somebody picked you up or put you you know, put you on their lap and that didn't feel comfortable, but you didn't have the words of vocabulary to say no, or you thought it was okay, but your body still felt off. There are so many nuances of how this could show up and still be alive inside, right? And so this can be a really delicate exploration. And then for some people, right, there are really traumatic body boundary violations, which we would categorize as sexual trauma or sexual harassment or molestation. And, you know, that includes rape, that includes, um, well, you know, all the things that that could include. The other thing that I want to add is if you're a female who is consenting to sexual you know, interactions, sexual intercourse, and in that interaction, you suddenly don't feel comfortable, but you feel like obligated, like you have to continue going along with it because you already said yes. That is another example of a body boundary violation because you're now not listening to what makes you feel comfortable in your skin. You're saying yes, even though it became a no, right? And so these are all the things that we get to explore when we do the inner work to look at our food and eating issues. Because if you have body boundary violations and you have not processed them in healthy ways, then there's extreme discomfort in your body. And that can influence your eating patterns in a few ways. First of all, you may eat to try and numb or soothe the emotional discomfort from those experiences. And second of all, if you don't feel safe in your body, then you may actually unconsciously eat as a way to create physical protection. So fat can become physical cushion or protection. A lot of women I talk to don't actually want to be thin and attractive. I mean, they do, a part of them wants to, but another part is actually afraid of that because of the unwanted attention they're worried they might attract, right? And if you're afraid of the types of attention or interactions you're gonna receive if you lose weight, then that will become a subconscious weight loss block, right? Now, I'm not about helping you lose weight. That's not my goal. My goal is to help you process all of the, the emotional wounds and to go through the inner work to help heal yourself. And a byproduct of that might be weight loss. But I just want to be clear that that's not the goal that I have when I support women on their healing journey. The final category is the fear of shining too bright. And this is really the woman wound, which I think we've all experienced in one way or another. Maybe if you have sisters, you always felt like you were compared against your sisters. And if you were better than them, maybe they felt bad and then you felt bad that they felt bad. Or maybe you excelled in something and then other girls didn't like you or were jealous of you and they would talk about you behind your back or not include you in gatherings or exclude you or spread gossip about you, right? We know that when people gossip or they're jealous, it's usually because you possess a quality that they actually really want for themselves. And there's a part of them that envies that you have it and they don't think they do, even though that's not true. And so we tend to hurt each other, women hurting women, when we have this fear of shining too bright. We also have a tendency then to eat, to stuff out our light. It's like, I don't want, especially if you're a people pleaser, I don't want other people to not like me. So if who I am 
being this loud, being this free, being this expressive, being this beautiful, being this successful, being this smart, if that is making other people not like me, let me conform. Let me shrink myself. Let me make myself small. Let me dim my light. And eating can be a way that we snuff out our life force when we eat too much, more than our body needs. It snuffs out that pilot light of your soul, right? And now I'm not shining at all. Now I'm dull and now I'm I'm almost like the walking dead, right? I'm not gonna threaten anybody. No one will be jealous of me anymore. No one will ever say anything to make me feel bad about who I am. In fact, people don't even see me anymore. Now I just fade to the background. It's almost like I'm invisible, right? Have you ever experienced that in one or more settings, in one or more relationships? Because if you have, and you're wanting to embark on this healing journey to really allow yourself to heal your mind and your body and your soul and to stop engaging in these problematic eating tendencies and to nourish your body in a way that truly feels good to you and to begin to actually feel good again in your skin and to feel confident and radiant. It means your subconscious has to feel comfortable feeling that confident, has to feel comfortable feeling that shiny and bright. You have to feel safe to be seen. You have to feel safe to express. You have to feel safe to be yourself no matter what anyone else might potentially think or how they might respond, right? And so being able to process those emotional wounds where you thought it wasn't safe to be yourself, where it wasn't safe to shine, is an important step on your healing journey. So there you have it. Those are five of the biggest, most common categories of emotional wounds that I see with my clients, that I've experienced myself. And you guys, I picked the top five most common categories. There are plenty, plenty more that we could explore. And that's why the work that I do is so engaging and fascinating. Because every time I sit down with a group of women or a client one-on-one, It's like we get to discover together what is here and it's fascinating what can arise that we never ever would have thought with our cognitive mind was there in the background or in the body impacting how you feel. So if you're feeling a strong resonance with what I'm sharing and you feel called to start to do your own deep healing and begin this inner work journey and you're looking for a guy and you resonate with what I'm speaking or saying, I invite you to join me. I will be starting pretty soon a new group coaching program that's gonna begin in April. I'm taking applications. I'll include that link below. You can also join my wait list to work with me one-on-one, although full disclosure, right now the wait looks closer to six to 12 months. And typically this kind of work, we don't wanna wait. So that's why I have the group program starting in April so that you all can get the support you need now. And like I said, we're starting to move in the direction of collective healing, healing together. So this group program is actually going to be a really potent container for collective healing and group healing. When we come together, two or more come together, there's this amplification of healing that takes place. Because what one woman experiences, you're also experiencing to a certain degree. And so healing and clearing can actually happen quicker. There's an acceleration of it. Anyway. I'm done rambling. 
If that's interesting to you, you want to learn more, book a call with me and we can decide together if you're a good fit. Thanks for tuning in to the Empowered Eating and Living podcast. If you liked today's episode, make sure to follow the show so you don't miss future ones. And if you loved it, then please leave a five-star review so that we can share the love with others who may benefit from listening too.